Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Social media, message apps, and other digital communications technologies restructure the ways in which information flows, and thus how humans interact with one another, and how they make sense of the world, and how they come to consensus on how to deal with problems. Now, more than a dozen researchers at multiple universities who study technology, behavior, and complex systems believe questions about the impact of communications technology on collective behavior should be regarded as a crisis discipline noting that the vulnerability of these systems to misinformation and disinformation poses a dire threat to health, peace, global climate, and more. In a paper published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, they call on researchers and social media executives to take a Hippocratic oath and pledge first to do no harm to humanity. To hear more about these ideas, I caught up with three of the authors of the paper. Hi, I'm Joe Bach Coleman, postdoctoral scholar at the University of Washington Center for an Informed Public. I'm Rachel Moran. I'm also a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Washington Center for Informed Public. And I'm Carl Bergstrom. I'm a professor in the Department of Biology here at the University of Washington and a faculty member associated with the Center for the Informed Public. You all have brought together more than a dozen researchers for a very peculiar project. Tell me what it is you've done here with this paper, Stewardship of Global Collective Behavior. Think about the way that you get information today. It's completely different for almost all of us than the way we got information even 15 years ago. There have been these fundamental changes in the way information flows have arise. So we don't read newspapers so much as we skim stories from different uh, from different venues. Most of us get information and even news on social media on a regular basis. And the sort of scope of connections and social connections has expanded from sort of face-to-face uh, meetings only and, and information flows only to you know, a giant worldwide social network with several billion people in it. And all of this change has occurred in under a decade. And when you make changes that radically, there are massive behavioral consequences. We don't understand how this, this whole process of changing communication structures leads to behavioral processes. And we're also anxious because, of course, setting up this you know, new way of communicating ar- around the planet was not done with the you know, overarching aim of improving human well-being or of giving people accurate information or anything else. It was done with the aim of selling ads, plain and simple. And so this entire ecosystem exists to sell ads. It's become dominant in the way that we get information. And the consequences are dramatic and profound, as we've seen you know, both, you know, everything from the current anti-vax movement to what was going on on January 6th, um, any other number of examples you might choose to look at. If you kind of step back on the moon, you all are kind of looking down a broad perspective on how digital communications technology intersects with the species on a variety of levels, a broad historical perspective, a broad conceptual perspective. You're sort of thinking about it, bringing some ideas from maybe some unlikely places, what what schools of fish do, what insects do, for instance. Tell me a little bit about this group of experts that you brought together the field of collective behavior itself is this sort of emergent field that is coming around. It's not particularly well-defined. There's research kind of every, on everything from bacteria up through human societies. 
And it's all linked together by thinking about how individual interactions give rise to emergent patterns of behavior. It falls in the broader category of complexity science. So the authorship came together kind of linked around that. And one of the things that we kind of come back to is the notion that in order to understand a human brain, you might use a mouse model or C. elegans or a different system that has some similar properties. And so in order to kind of make sense of what's happening at global scales to our, our social systems, it helps to take a step back and look at other social systems that are naturally selected and exist and think about how perturbation impacts and alters those. So the authorship was you know, a mixture of people that work on animal models, but also social scientists. So we could get some kind of grounding in what they know and their rich body of knowledge. Um, there are physicists involved and complexity scientists, because I think all of these perspectives are necessary to begin to get a handle on on what's happening and where we're going and how to fix it. Rachel, is there anything, anything you want to jump in there on the methodology and how it got set up and how this group came together? Yeah, I actually was pretty late to the game on this and Joe included me kindly as a communication scholar and a journalism scholar. And I think for me, it's been really interesting to be sort of part of this very eclectic group because within communication studies of mis and disinformation, for example, we tend to focus on crisis events or political events or you know a COVID crisis currently and we really partially you know just through academic obsession and a lack of resources don't get that time to take a step back and think about well what does this mean long term what does this mean for sort of an, an aggregate behavior change that we're seeing and so it's really good to sort of get that kind of mix of disciplines of people who are working on completely different kinds of problems that have such intersection with a lot of the things that we're studying in communications and technology studies. One of the things that occurred to me reading this is maybe along the lines of what you're saying, you know, when you when we think about often in communications or journalism or even conversations about technology, you know, we often are thinking about humans as sort of individual agents, you know, uh, what do they know, what do they not know, you know, how do they kind of come to understand an issue uh, what are their politics? Uh, what are they trying to accomplish? But but this paper kind of makes us step back a little, little bit further and sort of think of them, you know, really, as, as Joe was saying, kind of more as a sort of a species of a set of behaviors. What do you think is the advantage of that perspective? I think that when we try to understand the way that misinformation and disinformation, even true information, uh, and what types spread on social media and on other, I mean, other current contexts, we really need to think in terms of the network on which all of this happens. And so we really, you know, in order to understand how any kind of information gets from an origin to the target demographic that it's reaching, we have to understand how it moves through that network. And so we need to be thinking, you know, as individuals, as agents in a network. And what's so interesting with social media is the sort of the structure of the social media network is so radically different than anything we've seen before, um, you know, in terms of the scale, in terms of the fact that who we actually interact with uh, are not, you know, who we ran into at our kids' football game. It's someone that an algorithm picked to suggest to us to follow because that algorithm has learned, you know, that that is likely to increase our engagement on a platform. And so that's creating a very, very different kind of structure. It's critical, we think, and this is kind of really a focal thing in this paper is that, you know, we have to really think about the way that these communication networks have changed from the in-person communication networks that we all inhabited 25 years ago to the social media networks that are completely different where I may have the majority of my interactions in any given day with people all over the world in different time zones, uh, many of whom I've never met, but are yet influencing my opinion, not only you know through carefully written pieces that go through vetting, editorial vetting or something like that, 
but you know, on breaking information that is spanning, um, just spinning out across the across the, the the web. And so, I think in order to understand the dynamics of of, of information patterns, we have to step away or, or, or step back up, raise ourselves up from you know thinking about how does this individual person integrate a little bit of information with all their preconceptions and their biases and their beliefs and their uh, and you know and, and the way they their schemas for thinking about the world and and look at a large number of those people all linked up by a network which itself is being formed by a whole new technology. In complex systems in general, I think this is a perspective that you have to have. If you want to understand how rolling blackouts occur, you can have a complete description of a power station and have no idea how rolling blackouts occur because it's about the network and how information flows, or in the case of these uh, electricity flows, uh, between power stations, then cascading failure that's caused as a result. So when we're thinking about society and large-scale behavior, if we don't have this sort of network zoomed-out perspective, there's a lot we won't be able to understand or make sense of. So you make um, some comparisons, uh, you know, in the in, in these first two sections, especially around uh, the scale of human social networks and, of course, the the kind of nature of of the network structure or changes in the network structure. You make some comparisons to other species. Um, can you can, can maybe just draw out a few of those? Yeah, and one of the most peculiar things about animal groups is they don't have the same sort of scale that human societies do, with the exception of maybe Argentine ants. Uh, they seem to be sort of size limited to some extent, right? And so in the case of scale, one eerie thing is the fact that we don't have an example of, of multi-billion member animal species uh, that exists stably for any period of time. Uh, and in the case of changes in network structure, a lot of the research we've done on fish responding to predation suggest that network structure is how they avoid misinformation about a predator being present when there's not one there, but also are really sensitive to real information. So there's a ton of literature in the like to be animal behavior um, work on um, highlighting how uh, these factors actually determine their ability to behave collectively in a functional way. Press you a little on the inf- information fidelity and correlation section, yeah. because you know you have some, uh, I, I think, interesting perspective on the problem of disinformation that's different from the way that, say, you know, folks like uh, Rachel and myself who look at this more from a communications journalism type of perspective might think about it. Talk a little bit about your, your findings on information, fidelity, correlation, and then maybe, Rachel, how maybe that's changed your perspective. So I think that one thing uh, we lose sight of is the idea that noise can be good for a system in general. Uh, so it's important for ideas to mutate and change as they move along. So I tell Carl something, Carl tells someone else something. And in the offline world, this might pick up new information as it goes. Uh, but in the digital world, it can just kind of keep being repeated as is. So if I send a, a misinformation thread about vaccines on a WhatsApp message, it can get to everyone without changing and without being fact-checked or correct along the way. Without degrading as well, which is super important. You know, if Joe is working for some nefarious organization, sends out a disinformation message, and then I forward it, and then the people I forward it to and forward it, and so on. Where and then it, it, it retains its its you know its well craftedness. Whereas if Joe sends me a disinformation message, and then I tell somebody you know oh yeah I heard this thing, and I can't remember quite how it goes, but it's kind of like this. And then they sell someone oh this guy I know heard this thing, and it goes a bit like that. And at that point, it's petered out because like it's just you know nobody's able to sort of keep the you know rhetorical force and and, and finesse of the original argument. Whereas when we forward it, it just carries on that every layer of the way. And that's very dangerous. I mean, Joe, at some point, uh, we should get, you should comment about, uh, about WhatsApp and the efforts to limit this, because this is extremely interesting. But I also want to you know, hear Rachel's side of this as well. And it's something that we are really concerned about in communication studies. Like we've been thinking a lot about 
screenshots, for example, like one, all of the interventions to try and slow the spread of misinformation is like you take a piece of content down and we're putting up algorithms to detect and do content moderation on particular uh, keywords or particular images, but people, you take it down, someone screenshotted it and they share the screenshot and that goes just as viral as the original piece did. So we have so many tools to kind of capture and keep together that initial fidelity that it's a, a huge issue. And yet, I mean, Joe, to definitely talk for a second about WhatsApp, because their attempts to sort of limit this uh, resharing and continued resharing of of links is one way that maybe might curtail that sense of fidelity, but I'm not I'm not entirely convinced by it either. And before moving to WhatsApp, I think there's a point of comparison here that's important, which is that real news usually has multiple sources of or, uh, origination, right? So um, local news sources might get an AP wire, kind of independently verify it, put a spin on it and put it out there and it spreads. And if that's the case, it's okay because it's starting from lots of places. But in comparison, false news might have a single point of origin and if it gets decayed normally, that's great. But the way things are set up now, it can spread an arbitrarily long distance. I think that's a really fundamental key point about how noise fidelity here. Um, and then when you're trying to triangulate, then you're seeing, you're hearing the same story repeatedly. So you say, oh, this, you know, from different people. Oh, my aunt told me this. My buddy told me this. You know, it must be true, right? Everybody seems to think it, but it all has a single origin. And with the WhatsApp thing, there was a, I believe they limited the amount of forwarding, they found this problem of, of forwarding of misinformation. So someone has some anti-vax thing that it causes magnetism or whatnot, and that gets forwarded along. And the limit was four forwards plus one, basically, as I understand it. So you can send it once, then forward it four times, then one last forwarding, which is six or so degrees away from the sender. And if you've ever heard the six degrees of Kevin Bacon or any of the small world, small, small world network stuff, pretty much everyone is usually within six degrees. So their limitations restricted to sending it to anyone in the world more or less. And so it maybe reduces some of the, the echoing off the edges of the network and kind of coming back through, which probably improves user experience. But in terms of limiting the spread of misinformation, it's not clear that that would be what you'd want to do. And there's no reason they couldn't get on to three, right? And, and that's a great example of an answer to your earlier question. You say, why, why kind of scale up and look at this from this higher level? And if you're looking at the individuals, just in the information that comes to them, you don't see that. But when you, you know, integrate network theory with uh, you know, thinking about how misinformation spreads through networks. Now, all of a sudden, you know, Joe can make this observation that, hey, limiting to six actually doesn't do any good because everybody's within six links of everybody else in the world. And kind of building on that a little bit, there's uh, the thought that you just have to train individuals to get better at recognizing misinformation and this sort of information literacy thing. And that is a value, valuable and valid way of thinking about problems. But it'd be nice if we could find ways of thinking about the system as a whole to make that task easier on them. If we're not, they're not so bombarded with misinformation, then they don't have to be as um, intensely good at picking out um, all the wrong things from good things. I think just to, uh, just one last thing to add to that as well. I think that's such an important point. You know, I we study a lot about trust and the and the um, erosion of trust in institutions and the erosion of trust in academic um, knowledge, for example. And actually, if we focus on media literacy, what we're doing is put the onus on trust back on the people, on um, to people to learn. When really we should also be thinking about how we can make things more trustworthy. And I think that's what we're advocating. Really, is like taking that step back to think. Yes, we need to equip people with media literacy skills, but really we need to make our systems more robust. So what they're trusting in is well-placed from the, from the get-go. The third section of this focuses on algorithms and has you know this great phrase, we are offloading our evolved information foraging processes onto algorithms. What's so peculiar about algorithmic systems in the way of thinking that you've introduced in this paper? And why are you so concerned about them? 
Well, first of all, I think is that we don't have any sense of what these algorithms are actually doing. We have a vague sense that they're designed to optimize our engagement. They're trying to keep us on the platform, on the sites that can continue to sell ads to us. But we don't really know beyond that. We don't really know much about how they're doing that or what they're doing that. So that so they're, you know, there are two things. They are driving towards some objective that's orthogonal to any kind of, you know, uh, well-being. Of, of a human communication system or, or accuracy of a human communication system. And second of all, they're very dark, they're opaque. We don't, we can't track them. They're changing constantly because you know, the, the companies that are doing this are constantly upgrading the algorithms, changing them. So it's an ever shifting sort of uh, target that we're trying to understand. And they're doing it with enormous amounts of information on a scale, you know, psychological information on a scale that uh, you know, the field has never been able to access before because any of these uh, large tech companies, whether it's Google or Facebook or Twitter or whatever, will be running dozens, if not more, uh, A-B test experiments right away to see, oh, who clicks on this kind of content? Who clicks on that content? Does this algorithm you know, do a good job of predicting what is going to get people to engage? Does moving this uh, um, you know, forward bar up or down, does turning it red do this? And so they, they have this enormous amount of information. We're constantly part of this information that's being studied. And so these algorithms are mining our collective psychological workings to figure out, you know, essentially how to keep us on these platforms. And so they become very, very powerful at, uh, at sort of using us against ourselves, right? You know, l- luckily, they're not, you know, strictly malicious, as best as we know, they're sort of, they're amoral, if you will, they just want us on there. That said, they're very, very good at what they do. So that's kind of one issue with algorithms. Another big issue with algorithms is simply that, you know, algorithms are tend to pick up and often amplify social biases. So the algorithms figure out things, um, you know, about the way that society is organized, and then they often amplify that. And so just, you know, as a a very simple example, without the help of algorithms that we're recommending people to follow and things like that, I don't think we'd see the sort of extremely uh, broad distributions of, you know, how many people are followed, where you have these people that are being followed by 90 million uh, other individuals. That's something that you know never happens in the in the in the in the physical world, really. But in in an algorithmic world, it can happen very very easily. There's a million other things that I'm forgetting the important ones. Joe, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I think positive feedback is a big part of this as well. In in climate, for example, as the temperature gets warm, ice melts, which lowers reflective index, like the reflectivity of these ice sheets, which then causes more absorption of sunlight and then more melting. Right, you know, these sort of positive feedback loops that spiral off into a, a hot house Earth. I think similar things can happen in human society where you have uh, some sort of small scale, I don't know, anti uh, odd belief, for example, that, you know, the algorithms pick up on is engaging. Then they give that to more people, which creates a bigger community sort of feedbacks that then spool off into something like QAnon or, or, or other dangerous lines of thinking. And so I think there's the role of feedback is really destabilizing for any complex system and algorithms provide that at a global scale in a way we've just never seen before in our species history. It's dangerous because we began, we've begun to think about algorithms as, as being like heuristics, like, oh, it's the reason that I get to see the news that I want on my Twitter feed. And it's not a heuristic, it's, it's a profit-making machine. And I think it's really dangerous that when we start to forget that. And from the kind of perspective of positive feedback, we also redefine sort of what information is newsworthy through these algorithms. Like increasingly news headlines are no longer written by the author of the article themselves, but by someone who is an SEO specialist who knows what's going to make them place at the top of Google News or get them picked up and reshared by people on Facebook. And so that fundamentally changes what we think of as the role of journalism is to kind of create this account of history and tell us the things 
we need to know and really it's actually geared more towards tell us the things we want to know other than what we need to know so this is complete sort of that positive feedback loop that Joe's talking about is redefining information in terms of what we kind of should be looking at to be able to live in a collective society and make collective political decisions make public health decisions uh, is completely changed by the fact that the news is going through this Facebook filter first. Right. And also really important to recognize that it's not just uh, the social media side of things that's doing this. I mean, it's more generally the algorithms that are involved both at search and in ad placement and all this other and, 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 and ad sales in general and, and fundamental ways that just the commercial model of how we receive our news, the way that that's changed has important really dramatic impact on the way that news is presented. So it used to be you'd subscribe to the New York Times, you would read the New York Times kind of as a whole, and the articles in the New York Times weren't particularly aggressively competing with one another for, for your mind share, uh, because they were all start part of a package. Um, now, when you, you know, pick up your iPhone in the morning, and it gives you a sort of news summary for the day, there's stories from eight different outlets that are, that are competing for your, for your eyeballs. And uh, so, of course, you know, as we say um, in, in one thing we wrote, you know, that what happens under that circumstance is the unvarnished truth is no longer good enough to, to get us to click. So people have to exaggerate. They have to appeal to our to our worst, uh, our worst impulses. And so, you know, when we could be, uh, you know, clicking on a detailed story about the, um, you know, uh, about the latest uh, healthcare plan or something like that. Um, instead, we look through and there's a celebrity breakup and there's nine cats that look like Disney princesses and we're off and running and we're not getting the same kind of information that we would have before because of a change fundamentally in the commercial model involved in selling this information. Seems to me we also see politicians designing ideas and legislation to go through this filter. Do, do you think that's likely? Without a doubt, like all political campaigns now are engineered for for the digital age. It, everything is content, right? So when even when you're watching a presidential debate, those sound bites they're not to get policy across in the most clear way. They are to create whatever meme is going to go viral and reach the amount, most amount of people and take a, take advantage of those network effects that we're talking about, getting to the most amount of eyeballs in the quickest way and the cheapest way possible. So there is there is no denying that it, it not only shapes yeah journalism, but it shapes how we do politics entirely. So one of the headlines out of this paper is that you want people to regard the study of collective behavior and this intersection of digital media and humanity as a crisis discipline. What is a crisis discipline? So the coin, the term, as I understand, um, was used by Michael Soule in this paper called What is Conservation Biology? That's my first known use of the term. I'm sure it existed before then. And he made the point that ecosystems are being degraded by over-exploitation in the 80s, and it was a big concern, save the whales and such. And there is a need to figure out how to fix these things before they go away, because there's a time that you can't wait till you figure it out entirely. <clears throat> but the theory and the ability to understand these systems is somewhat limited, right? We don't have a full, complete description of every ecosystem's interactions and, and whatnot. So the field has to kind of find a way to, to take care of these fragile systems as they're collapsing uh, without a full understanding. And this happens a lot with our own bodies as well. When you go to the doctor and something's wrong with you, we don't always understand the entire physiology, but we do things like provide medicine to make comfort or to reduce symptoms or otherwise. And so these sort of crisis disciplines are kind of defined by a system that's complex, uh, is changing rapidly in a way that seems detrimental and we don't fully understand and trying to mount an evidence-based response to that. These crisis disciplines are disciplines where we're trying to fix an unknown problem in a burning plane at 30,000 feet. That's a crisis discipline. 
you also uh, essentially call on folks who work on things like social media or other large scale systems and digital communications to take a kind of Hippocratic oath or an oath to do no harm. Um, what, what do you think this means in practice? If, if you're Mark Zuckerberg or any of his many tens of thousands of employees, what, what would you like to see them do differently through the lens of thinking of this as a crisis discipline? I'm going to push back here actually a little bit. I don't think that a group of three scientists should define this. Um, I would love to give you an answer, but we have specific privileges and things in life that got us here to write this paper. And it's not on us to decide what ethically should happen in the world, only to try to understand how it's happening. And then the rest of the decisions beyond us. And yet in the paper, you, you say there are these ethical obligations and, and you, you make a reference to some requirement on the individuals who are responsible for building these systems. I think, you know, in writing the paper, we have to have some statement about what that might look like. Um, that's part of the publication process. And we did bring on an, an ethicist, uh, Mark Alfano, to help us kind of sketch out the structure of that and some principles that might be considered. But in terms of what it actually looks like in, in practice and implementation, that's, I think, not a scientific question fundamentally. Well, I mostly have very micro scale suggestions along these lines as opposed to the, the, the broader scale. I mean, I guess the, the things that I would like to see as I would like to see a broader understanding and consideration of algorithmic ethics in all of these kinds of workplaces. Uh, and that would include understanding that when we use algorithms and we use machine learning and technologies like this to train systems to do things, those systems are not unbiased, but rather they are learning and focusing almost like you know light under a magnifying glass the biases that are already inherent in society. And so to be aware of those kinds of issues and problems, and of course, this is an entire research field that, that's uh, rapidly growing and is extraordinarily important. For me, I want to see that come into uh, the training and decision-making at every level within these tech communities. And Joe, maybe I'll ask you this question in a maybe slightly different way. Um, you know, who should be at the table, basically, in deciding how these systems are, are built, structured, and executed? So I think the, the role of scientists here in this space is to just try to help like, understand how the systems work and what they do and the, the costs and benefits of them, right? So to try to quantify the decision-making process in general. So scientists, I think, should be there and only to make it for an informed discussion. But then beyond that, it's, it's you know, this involves the entire world. So any group of humans that might be impacted by this, as well as people that care about externalities and other systems like the natural world, Otherwise, it's, it's got to be a large table, and I think we can't leave anyone out, importantly. Um, and to your earlier question, like, what should they do as a first thing? I mean, the easiest thing is to transparently measure and report harm, right? We don't even have that. So we don't know how many people got, got radicalized by YouTube. And I'm sure they could pull that out of their data, right? They can see people's trajectories through their video space. We don't have these sort of reports. Um, so having just transparent accountability to start with is the first bit of that ethical thing. Because then we can start to make decisions about what needs to happen, right? Um, at the moment, it's so opaque that it's even hard to know what, what that would look like. And I think that the platforms who are doing their own research think in terms of their stakeholders being just users and, and not even just users, but profitable users. They really only care about the people who are staying long enough to earn the money in countries that they can actually earn money in. And we really need to expand our thinking not only to profitable users, but thinking about how these these kind of social media platforms and our interactions on them are restructuring even those people who are off platform, who people who don't have social media at all, and which is all of us. So 
as Joe said, it's a really big table and quantifying harm is uh, upon that huge table of people is really difficult because we think about it often, again, as I said before, around these crisis events of like how many people have fallen down the QAnon rabbit hole, how many people voted in the election and felt like it was going to be robbed. And we, ha we haven't got concrete ways of measuring harm in terms of really broad everyday things, such as like a lack of trust in an institution or a, a lack of a ability to find truthful, trustworthy information. And that kind of harm is really difficult to measure. The other thing I'd like to see would be a little bit of guided stewardship in terms of what the algorithms are actually doing. So if you have uh, an algorithm that has learned that people uh, are more likely to engage when they're pissed off, then they, that algorithm is going to deliver people inflammatory content. That's going to change the overall, you know, if this is a platform like, like Facebook or Twitter or something that's used really broadly, that's going to change the overall tenor of how we feel in this country about the others around us. And this is a really prominent actually area for, for not only, you know, uh, the algorithms sort of serving us poorly, um, but also for, you know, sort of active, uh, uh, you know, propaganda manipulation, if you can, um, you know, play both sides, and this is a strategy we see a lot, there's some uh, event will occur, some hot button issue like Black Lives Matter or um, gun control or whatever it is, and we see uh, foreign propaganda playing both sides, inflaming both sides, and if they can manage to create the perception in the United States among everybody that half of the populace is irrational, um, can't be compromised with, and is possibly evil, then they've convinced us that our democracy isn't going to work. Uh, the problem is that even algorithms, if algorithms start to learn something like the fact that people are most engaged when they're the most pissed off, algorithms can actually create those kinds of sentiments without even any active malice. And so the notion of active stewardship means tracking those algorithms like uh, my colleagues have talked about, uh, means looking at what they're doing and how, what the impacts of those things are doing on our sort of cultural and, soci and societal landscape. And I think also with an eye towards um, the impacts on marginalized communities in general is a big part of this as well, because these effects might not be felt uniformly. That anger that's stoked might bear down on a very small group of people very hard. And considering those sort of externalities is really important as well. Who do you hope reads this? I'd like to see people in the tech community read this and think about this and start to think about the larger scale impact of what our massive restructuring of our information ecosystem, it, it, what impact that's having. Um, I would like to see people in the uh, social and social sciences and humanities read this, recognize this as a critically important problem in terms of understanding who we are right now and where we're headed in a very short period of time. I would like to see, uh, I'd like to see natural scientists uh, read this, uh, people who are doing work in, in complex systems and things like that, and realize that this is one of the great urgent unsolved problems. It's an interesting problem, it's a critical problem, and it's a very hard problem, and we're gonna need input from a lot of places. So I really wanna reach essentially the breadth of the academic and uh, tech communities. The kind of label crisis discipline feels like a depressing diagnosis, but I actually read it as more of a rallying cry for interdisciplinarity, like getting to work with people who are in completely different fields that I would never usually interact with and finding so much common ground and finding new approaches to think about the things I'm already studying is just, as, as happens in this paper, I think is a really kind of positive thing to come out of that label is to call people to work with one another who people across systems that you wouldn't usually get to uh, interact with their work. I think honestly, 
regulators and scientists as well, because there's a tendency to think that we've seen all this before and we just need to figure it out again. Uh, and that this is just the same as any other new technology it just has growing pains. But I think we make a really strong argument in the paper that, that there's no reason to assume this is stable and good in the long term. Um, and so I think having us all humble ourselves a bit and, and realize this is a problem we don't understand um, very well. So anyone that is working in the area to just take a moment to realize that we maybe don't have a good grasp on what's happening or where it's going. So that might be a critique that I might hear from some other individuals who study these issues and who occasionally do take a broad historical perspective. They'll say, well, yeah, you know, Gutenberg came out with this printing press and there was a hundred years of war, or, you know, we saw some terrible things happen at the advent of radio. You know, of course there was some destabilization with TV, but at the end of the day, you know, we incorporated this into society and we moved along. Why is this different? Well, first of all, I mean, the end of the day after the hundred years war or whatever is not a, you know, it's not a good place to be. So uh, I would rather not see us sort this out the hard way. Yeah. I think that that's the first thing is that it's, it's um, someone pushing back in that manner. I would ask, you know, how many people dying is an acceptable growing pain for technology before we require some sort of response uh, as a first and foremost thing. The second how thing many is democracies that, failing. Yeah, how many democracies fail? Exactly. Um, how many, yeah, how much damage from climate change because we refuse to act is okay for the growing pain of ad sales online? You know, what, what trade-off are we going to make? That's an important conversation to have, but I think that's something to push back on there. And I also think that there's fundamentally different things about social media online than there is about the printing press. Uh, this is doled out globally with changes can happen overnight, right? Facebook can run an experiment, find what's more engaging and push it to all of its users and in a very short period of time, right? The printing press took decades for it to spread throughout the world and be used widely, right? So this, the speed and the scale is also fundamentally different from anything in the past. That's really important. And one thing that, you know, one thing to note about this is, yeah, what, not only like a big change, like, uh, you know, starting to use Facebook spreads quickly, but any little change that Facebook makes propagates instantly around the entire world and takes instant effect. And uh, this is another kind of, you know, remarkable difference. I'm not 100% convinced that, uh, that you know, this particular uh, revolution in information technology is going to uh, change the world or change the world for the worse any more so than the development of uh, spoken language, the development of written language, or the development of the printing press. But those were pretty catastrophic events in our history. And I would put this potentially at the same scale. And uh, that's a lot of what we're trying to say. You know, we didn't have complex systems to sit around and be like, okay, that, you know, that dude's writing stuff down on paper. We've never seen that before. What's going to happen? Um, but now we've got it. So let's, let's you know, try to make the best of it, see if we can take an active role as early as possible in stewarding where it is that we're going. So on some level, with the benefit of, of hindsight, we should act more responsibly. I mean, yeah, I would also add in that, you know, all these technologies that have come before us, the idea that we're fine now, we've gotten past everything, is ignoring the fact that we're heading into like climate catastrophe and dealing with pandemics and not sort of like, these global challenges exist and are right in front of us because in part of the way we change our society over this time. So to suggest that we'll become stable because we're currently stable seems also a little bit um, just completely incorrect. It's really important, I think one, one message from the paper, 
is that there is no reason, you know, if we take a complex systems perspective on the way that it, humans are organizing into information sharing networks and decision making networks, there's no particular reason to believe there's some kind of invisible hand that's going to lead us to an effective, properly functioning um, information economy. Um, you know, people talk about, oh, you know, like the great, you know, the great thing about about uh, economic markets is that, you know, the people, everybody acting in their selfish interests leads to certain kinds of efficiency criteria if you make all the right assumptions and throw out the parts that don't work and so forth. It's not even clear that information networks go that far. So there's often a lot of trust that, well, you know, this is sort of an emergent system. It'll work its way out. We can just, you know, sit back and, and, and uh, you know, market forces and, and people will correct and, and all of that. There's no reason to believe that's actually true. These, back to our talk about feedback and the, the sort of runaway effects that occur in complex systems, destabilizations, sensitive dependence on, on sort of quite subtle aspects of the dynamics. So, you know, one thing that we think is very, very important is to not say, well, you know, doesn't really matter what uh, Facebook does doesn't matter what Google does, doesn't matter what the next big tech company does that's going to connect people in various ways, because everything else is going to, you know, everyone else will adapt and, and, and it's all going to, um, and it's all going to end up uh, functioning efficiently and, and accurately spreading reliable information through the world. No reason to think that's going to be true. And so that's where we think we need stewardship. Uh, to think about, okay, this is a thing we desire. We want people to have access to reliable information about the world so that they can make informed decisions for the betterment of themselves and their families and, and, and broader communities. Joe, Rachel, Carl, thank you very much. Thank you. Really enjoyed that. Thanks so much. That's it for this week's show. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our guests. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.